1: Let's start today's episode by immediately traveling back in time and with a fantastic sound cue. There we go. That sets the mood. I'm Ben.
0: Hey, doggy. I'm knowing I'm going to kill you. Are you? I'm going to kill you dead, rob your corpse, and k- kill your sister.
1: Are, uh, are you going to do that voice the whole time?
0: Yeah. I really like this Ennio Morricone track you got playing here, because we have to refer to the track for fair use privileges.
1: That's true, Ennio Morricone, one of the uh, favorite instrumentalist composers of both Noel myself and our super producer Casey Pegram. So, yes, here we are in the Wild West. Noel, you're a varying character. I just received a death threat.
0: Yep, that was that wasn't that wasn't me. That was my. Long lost, uh, gold panhandling cousin, Jed. Ah, uh, yeah, Jed Throw Tuttle Brown, right? Actually, uh, that doesn't even work. I said my name in the voice. <laughs> the jig is up, but no, the thing about the Morricone is that, uh, is storied tune, um, soundtracked, uh, f- Many a a western, uh, spaghetti western, is seen through the eyes of of Italian uh, cinema um, that really helped kind of paint a picture of the Wild West as this lawless time where someone just as soon shoot you twixt the eyes as look at you.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, a time on the edge of the frontier wherein the closest thing to the law might be a single sheriff and roving bands of wild criminals hold entire regions under their sway. Or not... Right, because it turns out, friends and neighbors, ladies and gentlemen, that the Wild West was actually much more chill than fiction, film and novels and even older documentaries would have us believe. If you think about the Wild West today and you're, you know, just casually remembering stuff, you might think of movies like Tombstone. You might think of the Man with No Name or yeah. something like that. Or Wild Bunch.
0: <laughs> <Peck and laughs> Good, the bad, and the ugly. Once upon a time in America, any of these mm. kind of portrayals—it's uh, it's a—it's rife. It's a very rich uh, landscape and um, potential for some real interesting characters and action uh, to sell a story. Um, but as it turns out, the rumors have been, you know, largely uh, exaggerated.
1: Yeah, one of the first rumors, this this is something I had learned about a little while ago, one of the first rumors concerns the length of time that we would refer to as the Wild West because for a lot of people there's an assumption that if there are so many stories about this, both completely fictional stories and completely true stories, if there's such a wealth of lore, then surely this went on for a long, long time. However, what we've learned is that it was not a very long span of time at all. It was probably, what, 30 years on the outside if we're
0: counting bookends and stuff. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I found a piece in the Independent Review, uh, a journal of political economy written by Thomas J. DiLorenzo, who refers to two schools of thought when it comes to looking at the Wild West. Um, one is uh, considered the frontier was violent. And with dashes in between. This is, this is a thing that was established by historian Roger McGrath. And then there was the, uh, the other position that was the, the, the frontier was, was not so violent. But Bruce Benson, who did a thorough review of this idea that the West was violent, he kind of discovered that a lot of historians just assume that violence was pervasive even more so than today. And then, you know, just theorize about what the likely causes of this were.
1: What's that called, Ben? Confirmation bias. They were looking for something that proved their pre-existing opinion. That's the one. And it is absolutely true. And I think this is bonkers for a lot of people. If we were being super generous with the time period. We would refer to, let's say, maybe 1850s, late 1850s to 1900. It's what most historians would include in what's called the frontier period. There's a great article via the FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, wherein author Larry Schweikart examines the non-existent frontier bank robbery. (laughs) So— You know, that's one of the big stories of westerns, right? There's the great train robbery, the great bank heist rolling into town for all of the gold. The problem is this almost never happened. If we, if we look at actual bank robberies in this time period. They seem to be myths over roughly 40 years across 15 states. uh, This author and some of his co-authors identified three to four definite ones. And then in later correspondence to try to clarify the record, they found two or three others that were pointed out. And still the records clear Larry Schweikart is arguing there are more bank robberies in modern-day Dayton, Ohio, in one year than there were in the entire Old West in a decade.
0: Yeah, not to mention that during that 15-year period in the late 1880s, there were typically only an average about three murders a year in uh, towns that were established in the frontier like Abilene, Dodge City is a famous one. You think about having quick draw matches in the street. Sure. Not really a thing. You see those reenacted. There is really no historical precedent for that or cities like Caldwell and Ellsworth and Wichita. Uh, and those were all in Kansas and had railroad stops, which is another thing that gets kind of a bad rap. These railroad stop cities were hubs of scum and villainy.
1: Right, yes, yes. And the frontier was the place where someone who had done some dirty deeds, dirt cheap, just to follow up the reference, in the East would travel to start again, right? Uh, But these not only were these murders very rare and these bank heists relatively rare – It turns out that few people had guns, like it, like at all, you know, and, and like Dodge City, which Noel just mentioned. Completely banned the carrying of firearms, which doesn't really jibe with the pro gun stance depicted in so many films.
0: Oh, not only that, it was used by firearm manufacturers as this kind of selling this image of the the gun totin', rootin' tootin' outlaw or lawman or mm-hmm. cowboy or what have you. Um, I found an article in the journal Western Historical Quarterly called Quantifying the Wild West, the problematic statistics of. Of frontier Violence, written by Robert R. Disktra, And it starts out with a quote from Cormac McCarthy from No Country for Old Men. Fabulous writer, fabulous book. book, excellent film, if you haven't seen it. But the quote goes like this. Some of the old-time sheriffs wouldn't even carry a firearm. A lot of folks find that hard to believe, but it's a fact. And, and as it turns out, it is a fact. Right, and
1: we're not arguing that there were no... Barroom scuffles oh, no. and fisticuffs. Oh, no. That would be, you know, that's going to be common wherever you find large amounts of alcohol and statistically speaking unattached young males. So dudes without, uh, family or, or family structure, children or, or those kind of responsibilities, uh, will tend to, as a community, have higher rates of those sorts of conflicts. But they're not out shooting each other every day.
0: Willy nilly. No, it's, it's in fact, Anita Mullins kind of referred to these as little pockets of violence. Um, a lot of times they were in uh, gold mining towns like uh the town depicted in the HBO show Deadwood. Um, you have folks that were coming there in droves because gold was found, prospectors, and there was a need to protect your claim from so-called claim jumpers. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you introduce alcohol and gambling. Of course, there are going to be some fisticuffs. But here's the interesting part. It turns out that a lot of this stuff kind of took care of itself through various independently organized law enforcement agencies or groups. So with gold mining, for example, starting around 1848, the miners kind of agreed with each other to have covenants and compacts to keep them from getting into situations like this. So, you know, there was no government authority in these territories in California, um, apart from the occasional military outpost. Sure. Um, but the miners actually came to some pretty good terms. And as long as they abided by the rules, they were able to defend their rights under these community compacts.
1: The individuals that would be representative of this were known as enforcement specialists. Justices of the peace, folks who would arbitrate disputes, right? And they developed their own pretty robust code of property and criminal law, and this this worked quite well. There was relatively little violence and theft. The contractual system effectively generated, the experts argue, cooperation rather than conflict. And when conflict arose, it was effectively quelled through nonviolent means most
0: of the time. That's right. This comes from that article in the Independent Review, The Culture of Violence in the American West, Myth versus Reality. Um, it goes on to talk about this kind of thinking extended to things like wagon trains, where the uh, settlers actually kind of had these caravans that actually got them to where they were going and protections of those and things like cattle rustling.
1: Yeah. When government bureaucrats failed to effectively control cattle rustling – The ranchers themselves established these cattlemen's associations. They hired private protection agencies. They even wrote their own constitutions. And some of these gunslingers, you know, did have sketchy past, had been associated with crime at the time. But – they never created any kind of large-scale organized crime. There was never a cattle-rustling mafia or anything. These were individuals or small groups that the associations typically dealt with when they rustled up the
0: posse of their own. That's right. And there were areas in uh, parts of Oklahoma and Arkansas on Indian land that were parts of the Cherokee Nation where, you know, there were bands of outlaws that could seek refuge and find high-outs in these hills that had caves and hollers and the like, and they were great places for these outlaw gangs to hide out. But they weren't coming to town every day and you know murdering everybody in the streets, right? First, that's not even sustainable, no. you know. And unless you're in Westworld and you can just do it every day and repeat,
2: it'll loop.
1: start over and over. God, what a
2: great show! Snag a job is where America goes to hire.
0: see Mint Mobile for details.
1: This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite
0: car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah. I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was Ooh. in Mad Max or something, you know?
1: The other part here that we we do need to emphasize, I'm really glad we're bringing this up, is that one of the real, most genuine causes of violence there in the West came from the u s. government's policies toward the Indian populations on the plains or Native American
0: populations. and that was sort of a continuation of a lot of the um you know, wartime attitudes of the Civil War. yeah, absolutely. Just kind of keeping things in almost like a police state kind of situation. Um, the Plains Indians were essentially the victims of an extermination plan that was government sanctioned in order to clear the way for the railroads.
1: Yes, clearing the way for the railroads and uniting the East and West Coast. So when we, when we talk about genuine violence in the American West, it's less a romanticized story of train robberies. Or bank heist every day, and it's much more a story of the people who are native to the land being persecuted by people who are moving onto their land.
0: And Thomas J. Lorenzo makes some excellent points in this Independent Review piece where he, you know, he cites the fact that by the 20th century, like around $800 million had been paid for Indian lands. Mm-hmm. And then he makes this distinction between the idea of a militia versus a standing army. I think this is really crucial. I'm going to this to you. Um, He says, A standing army, according to historians Terry Anderson and Fred McChesney, quote, creates a class of professional soldiers whose personal welfare increases with warfare, even if fighting is a negative-sum act for the population as a whole.
1: Yeah, and this is a practice that we can see in other parts of history, and it's, it's an unfortunate phenomenon. If your primary skill is violence-based, then you are motivated to pursue violent means and violent ends. So if you don't have any other skill to fall back on, like you can't be a farrier and work with horses or you can't, you know, be a banker or a school teacher or something like that, then you're going to end up pursuing crime, criminal activity And one example of this in, in, again, a very highly romanticized book on the West would be Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, where a lot of soldiers who formerly fought in a militia uh, become mercenaries pretty much for hire
0: by the U.S. government. Exactly. Or like things like the Pinkertons, which was like this uh, private army that eventually kind of became the tools of big industrialists and, you know, breaking strikes and just, just you know, doing horrible things for the purposes of commerce and making money. And that was totally at play with this railroad situation. Uh, in 1865, General William Tecumseh Sherman was given control of the military district of the Missouri and and uh, the purposes were to essentially wage a war against the Plains Indians. And this was all in the name of building that railroad. And you could justify that it was for progress. But there's a quote from Sherman that says – We're not going to let a few thieving, ragged Indians check and stop the progress of the railroads. And he wrote that to his friend Ulysses S. Grant. And politicians were making a whole lot of money as well on this expansion and building of the railroads. And there's even the the Crédit Mobilier scandal where American politicians were – Pocketing a lot of money because yeah. the railroads were being subsidized, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, in a very, very dirty and corrupt way. Uh, the What would become known as the Crédit-Mobile scandal uh, occurred in 1867, but p- the public didn't learn about it for several years. They learned about it in 1872. Uh, here's what happened. Thomas C. Durant, who was the vice president of the Union Pacific Railroad at the time, and a fellow named George Francis Train, formed Credit Mobilier in 1864 and they based it on a uh, pre-existing thing called the Pennsylvania Fiscal Agency. They were a loan and contract company. This was a deliberate, no bones about it, attempt to lie – both to the government and to the public, defraud. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good use of it. Independent of Union Pacific Railroad and its um, its stakeholders, its executive board, and what they were doing was overpaying for things. And when you when you use the phrase subsidy, or like you may recall, listeners based in the U.S., those stories that come up every so often about corruption in the defense industry where someone says, what? Why did you pay thousands of dollars for a toilet seat, $300 for a hammer, something like that? Through the railroad, they were overcharging the American public. They would um, have much higher rates than usual and cash and $9 million in discounted stocks were given as bribes to politicians, like straight up point A to point B bribes.
0: Yeah, like like – I'll give you my vote if you give me shares in this or give me a payout.
1: Yeah. And these weren't like uh these weren't all, you know, junior House representatives or undersecretaries. This included the vice president, the secretary of the treasury, you know, the people who are supposed to guard the public against this stuff. That's where a lot of the traceable violence occurs. And now now the. Typical murder rate for a large city is going to be higher than a typical frontier town. You could argue methodology and say that might just be a function of having a much higher population. I think that's valid. Absolutely. But then we also run into a problem when we try to get real-world statistics from that time. The compilation of homicide rates during the Wild West is still one of the longest-running controversies among statisticians today and probably will be for a long time.
0: Agreed. Let's get back to the depiction of the Wild West in popular culture, in Hollywood, in literature. Um, in that piece from Western Historical Quarterly, the uh, writer Robert R. Dijkstra talks about that very thing. And he says that... There was a time where even academics fully believed in the depiction of the Old West that Hollywood put out there. Oh, yeah. um, there is a, a writer by the name of Vernon Parrington who uh, wrote this on the post-Civil War frontier. He said, all things were held cheap and human life the cheapest of all. Uh, then we have another historian by the name of Harvey Wish who wrote that the conception of uh, the West. Western, you know, gold rush towns as being bold and wicked and that they were full of feuding bad men with swift, straight shooting marshals and that vigilante justice that we know so well. But then Dykstra writes that that was kind of backed off from in the 70s and 80s when the revised version of a popular textbook by Ray Billington was put out. Uh, and in that, He said this, he kind of like toned down the rhetoric a little bit. And he said that the shootout that's glorified in Western stories and motion pictures was absolutely unheard of. And that's the shootout we talked about earlier where two men stand in the street and do a quick draw kind of situation.
1: Right. And we should also take a second just to depict the true stories behind some of those iconic individual figures. Like Billy the Kid, right? One of the most... Well-known, at least in terms of headlines, right, one of the most well-known criminals of this period. Billy the Kid is only known to have killed eight people, each loss being a tragedy, of course, but that's a much lower body count than a lot of films would
0: have you believe. Not to mention, I could probably count the big-name historical figures that were kind of dramatized. You know, on, on two hands, like I know Wild Bill, I'm Hickok, I I know, <laughs> you know, uh, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and, you know, Calamity Jane mm-hmm. and, and the characters that were in Deadwood, you know, but that's, that's about it. It's, it's not like the kind of just endless roster of, of criminals that you maybe even, you know, think about today with like serial killers or any number of, uh, of hardened criminals.
1: And... Another thing that's interesting here is that Billy the Kid died when he was 21, estimated, early 20s at the
0: latest. Well, it's romantic, you know.
1: Right. It's, ro- it's romanticized and we have to wonder, does it do a disservice to the people who really lived in that time? I find it actually sort of inspiring to learn that the people who were living at this time were, by and large, trying to band together to survive, not to kill each other, not to have some weird proto-Mad Max existence, but to get along as best they could and to, you know, help their neighbors if their neighbors were in need. And, you know, they make a great point. I believe it's Dykstra who makes a great point saying that it's difficult to compare it may well just be impossible to compare crime rates in these towns to crime rates in the modern day, even if we took a small town that was the same size.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly it. You talk about the issue with um, population. For example, in 1880 in Dodge City... One person, one person out of 996 was killed. But as our pal Lori L. Dove writes for How Stuff Works, a hundred years later in Miami, 515 people out of 1.5 million people were killed. So, you know, although more people were murdered in Miami, if you look at the statistics, mm-hmm. it had a lower rate of homicide. Uh, 32.7% compared to 100.4% of Dodge City in the 1800s. And we have to be
1: careful with those
0: statistics because as
1: counterintuitive as they may seem sometimes and as unromantic as it is to deal with the facts, the facts are ultimately going to be more rewarding. So we don't need to have this sort of deification or lionization of crime. Right? Or criminals in what we call the old West. And it, the, the wild West as we know it was not some sort of desolate sin riddled place with the quote Laurie, uh, uses here that I love is, uh, where dead bodies piled up in the streets. It's, it, it's not like that at all. And I, again, I find it reassuring. And I think that when we fire up the time machine, you and I could actually go to the Wild West and have a, a, have a pretty, uh, cool experience as long as we're on our P's
0: and Q's. Yeah. You know, like, just don't be like Chevy Chase in National Lampoon's Family Vacation where <laughs> you try to talk trash to the fake bartender. Oh, I also
1: want to add one thing I found, um, I, I don't know if you ran into this, but it was very interesting. It's sort of a tangent here. And I don't want to go too long on it, but cowboys, as we understand them, are also largely an American myth. What we call a cowboy today is sort of a um, a whitewash version of vaqueros, which existed before any of this Wild West stuff. And a lot of the slang we associate with cowboys comes from vaqueros. Which is from what culture? These would be Mexican cattlemen. They were the original cowboys. And they're everything you would imagine. They got the big hat, riding a horse, herding livestock, came up with term, you know, we get from vaqueros, we get the terms bronco, lariat, stampede, and so on. And this happened. They, they led this life for, and held rodeos and stuff for, for, centuries before cowboys existed. Well, how about that? <laughs> how about that? Oh, and apparently I'm not a hundred percent on this, Noel, but apparently the term vaquero later evolved into buckaroo. Well, I'll be. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, man. Slap me with feathers and called me a chicken dinner.
2: I will not. (laughs) Thank you. That would be inappropriate for a workplace. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the
0: ride. Noel, do you remember your
1: favorite car?
0: and more of everything.
1: Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways
0: dot com. I think that about wraps up our topic for the day. But what do you say we take a second and open up the old listener mailbag?
1: That's an excellent idea. This will also be, I believe, only the second time that we have dared to open the listener mailbag. We have
0: been being real greedy and hoarding these delightful listener mails, but I think we should try and uh, fit this in a little more often. What do you think?
1: Yeah, let's see how it goes. You want to do one? I'll do one.
0: That sounds good. Our first listener mail comes from Alyssa. Uh, Greetings, Alyssa says. I'm a longtime fan of the whole stuff series. You and your entire entourage of podcast poets, I like that, Thanks, are Alyssa. what have gotten me through countless hours and miles as I train for marathons, ultra marathons, and countless other shorter races and uh, therapy runs. I, I, I did not know ultra marathons was a thing, but uh, I'm going to have to look into that. Uh, for that, I thank you, and we thank you, Alyssa, for listening. Well, I think you were all pretty perfect, I did find issue with one minor detail in Ben Franklin's Alphabet episode. While we do credit our good buddy Ben for inventing the bifocal, you mentioned how it was one of those things that has not yet really been improved upon. That was me. That is actually false. As an optician in the western New York area, I can tell you that the lined bifocal is quickly becoming obsolete. Improvements in technology have led to lenses that progress from distance vision in the top of the lens down to a reading prescription on the very bottom, with varying distances for intermediate vision in between. These progressive adaptive lenses, or PALS, for those of us in the biz, work <laughs> more the way the eye naturally works before the inevitable help with accommodation for... For reading as necessary, um, and it does so without a visible line in the lens itself. So yeah, I've seen those lenses that have that kind of like lower part that's for the reading. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't wear glasses, so I was kind of going off the top of my head with that. But thank you so much for schooling me. She goes on to say, "Pretty amazing. Maybe this could be a topic for a future episode. Maybe it's just the optical nerd in me. Keep up the great work, Alyssa from Jamestown, New York."
1: Thanks so much, Alyssa. We, we really appreciate the high praise. And I, I now I'm wondering how many people listening to the show are in the biz. <laughs> if you are, let us know. And, uh, Best of luck with the, did you say running? Marathons?
0: Marathoning and, um,
1: um, eye stuff. We better make more episodes, Noel, so, because marathons could take a while.
0: And you know what I say, Ben, there's no biz like the biz.
1: Mm-hmm. So thank you, Alyssa. This next email comes to us from Mo F. Mo says, hi guys, I'm new to the podcast. I just listened to your episode. When did all caps? Become yelling. I very much enjoy the history lesson as well as modern viewpoints discussed. Hearing about the removal of the caps lock key by Google on their keyboard and some calls for eliminating the button altogether, I wanted to bring in some personal perspective and also some observations about all caps in our lives. I'm a pharmacy technician for Osco drug. While I can't speak for other drug stores, I know that in every Osco I work at, the doctor's drug instructions, known as the SIG, are written completely in all caps. My guess is that we want to impress upon the patient the gravity of following the instructions to the T. If I didn't have the caps lock key, it would be mighty annoying to hold down the shift key while typing out every SIG. I also notice that all caps is everywhere we go, on traffic signage, stop, no turn on red, etc., which is always in all caps to the signs for business names and even on our money. I would argue it's most important the traffic and warning signs stay in all caps. Danger, comma, high voltage doesn't have quite the same gravitas as danger, high voltage. While I agree that all caps can be quite annoying online, I think they have a place in other areas of our lives outside the Internet. Wait, haha, there's life outside the interwebs? These are my thoughts. Thank you for welcoming to share them. Keep up the great work. Mo. That seems like a pretty pretty astute observation. We also had an engineer who wrote in on all caps. I
0: know, and I love this. I actually just pulled it up right when you said that. He talks about, uh, this is from uh, Ted, um, just the idea of pattern recognition. He says, some time ago, I was given the following explanation, and mm-hmm. it makes sense to me. When we learn to read, we have to sound out each letter in a word, and then once we have the word, we can attach the meaning. As we get proficient at reading, we no longer do this letter by letter, but rather we recognize the words more by the pattern the letters form. Um, and this is me interjecting here, I I could say the same thing about reading music. Uh, You start to see the patterns and, like, whether it's a space or a line on the music staff, and you don't necessarily have to really think as deep about it. You just recognize
1: it right away. So, Ted says, when we type in all caps, this pattern recognition by the brain is broken, and we have to look at those individual letters to form the words. And although we can still do this quickly, it slows us down and is more work for the brain. The extra work the brain is doing is what makes it feel different, like we're being young at. That's, pretty, that's a pretty interesting argument there, Ted.
0: And he goes on to illustrate it with uh, a bunch of words where he keeps the first and last letter correct, but jumbles up the letters in the middle. And I was shocked to realize that I could very easily read the whole sentence.
1: Yeah, the human brain is capable of all sorts of strange shenanigans and tricks. We want to thank you, Ted. We want to thank you, Mo, and you, Alyssa. Uh, This will conclude our listener mail, but not our
0: show. We would also like to thank all of your brains and the brains of of everyone listening. And we hope you will use your brains to write us an email at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com com or shoot us a note on any of the social media um, out there: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what have you, where we are ridiculous history.
1: Also, of course, thanks to our super producer Casey Pegram for saving the show. Thanks to uh, our House of Works author Lori L. Dove, and thanks to Alex Williams for composing our soundtrack, which a lot of people have been writing about. It's true.
0: We hope you'll join us next time when we ask the question: uh, What happened when people waged war over eggs? Oh man, yeah, that
1: one's coming up Yeah,
0: so uh, come hang out then And thanks for hanging out now For Ridiculous History This episode of Ridiculous History Is brought to you by Avalon Waterways Ben, are you in major need of a vacation
1: right now? Noel, you're a mind reader I am, and uh, aren't we all?
0: We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of
1: Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, of rolling vineyards and castled hills, into the heart of timeless
0: cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited
1: time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.